Welcome to Wobblies and Wizards. I am your host, Logar the Barbarian. And today I'm joined by returning guest Richard Ruane of R Rook Studios with his new game, My Chivalric Bromance. Welcome. Hey. And just for full disclosure, Shane and I had to look up how to pronounce chivalric. <laughs> saying it correctly, and I was saying it incorrectly. I I, I had to check first because I wasn't certain. I was checking with you. <laughs> I wasn't certain, and I was just plunging forward in complete ignorance and being wrong. But that's what I specialize in some days. <laughs> and we could still be wrong. I don't know. It was just YouTube. YouTube has told us that Shane is right. <laughs> Chivalric. So if you know the proper pronunciation, and here's the thing, too, like pronunciation of words varies so much, like regionally and across mm -hmm. the world. It could be right depending on where you're at. <laughs> Look, I, you know, for the first two years I played DD, I pronounced alignment wrong. So, you know, how did you pronounce it? I don't even remember. I just remember it was really embarrassing when I realized it, it was, it was exactly the same word they used, like when you were repairing your tires on a car. <laughs> I've never put that together too, too, there, the tires of the car. I think that's alignment. where I finally heard, that's where I finally heard the word pronounced because I was just reading in a book. And then my friends, you know, we just never talked about alignment. Tell us a little bit about, about my chivalric romance. So uh, My Chivalry Romance was written for the OSR June Jam, which was a fantastic jam put together by Nora Rose of Monkey's Paw Games. Really some really great stuff in that, in that uh, jam. I think a total of over 70 submissions. <clears throat> and I had initially going into it had thought I'm going to put together something more like an adventure or maybe a mini setting or something like that. And, uh, but at the same time, just a few days before, I had had to cash out a bunch of Adobe stock credits. I had had the subscription because of I'm a full-time freelancer and for some other stuff, I had had a full-time Adobe freelance or the full Ad Adobe creative cloud subscription for my freelance work that I just no longer needed. And it was coming up on when I could cancel it. Cause they only give you one spot a year to, to actually cancel it. Uh, and then you have to cash out all your Adobe stock credits or you lose them. So I was just going through searching for anything that I might one day use, at least even on a temporary cover uh, or anything or any kind of project. And I found this, a lovely, you know, set of images of uh, two nights kissing by uh, a photographer who's also a person who uh, does some gay romance stuff it, as a writer. And so I was like, sure, maybe one day I'll use that. And then I was like, my chivalric romance. Uh, actually, I, I initially called it chivalric romance. I'd been reading a lot of chivalric romances for the Robin Hood game that we talked about last time. Visually, just came up immediately, just hit me. And then uh, Wendy Yu, who's a great creator of Here There Be Monsters, said, call it my chivalric romance. And I was like, yeah, I would not take Wendy's advice. Wendy's great. That's, that's sort of how it started. It became a, I think at the same time, there was a little bit of discussion in a group you and I are both in over on Facebook uh, in the, o in one of the OSR groups there about statless OSR, about not OSR that doesn't have stats. Yes. We really kind of realized, I think, I think that there's not a lot there. So I, I kind of adapted a quick tag system, sort of inspired by City of Mist, but, you know, just kind of on its own that uh, you can, you, you essentially just have quick tags that you just count up and add to any of your dice rolls or that can be used against you in certain dice rolls. But otherwise, you know, a basic class and level system with no with no core stats uh, other than hit points. I subbed out thirst alignment for alignment. So like you, you define, you know, what's your real thirst are, whether that's like, you know, 
a long walk on a beach or like a tall, <laughs> tall, dark stranger. And uh, I think in the book, I, I, I mentioned that like, you know, you should take this about as seriously as you take your alignments in uh, <laughs> uh, with the same level of gravity and, and thought. It's a, uh, it's been a lot of fun to work on. Uh, I'm looking forward. I think, I think a couple of us may get to run it for the first time this Sunday. Uh, and I was telling you before we started, I, I, I've, uh, working with Brian Yaksha to develop a couple of quick maps that we'll use to sort of do some adventures that will go in the back of the book before it actually goes full time to press. But I did do like a free RPG day quick start of it uh, just to sort of get it out there. So uh, that's that's my chivalric bromance, uh, like at a, at a high level. Uh, and then it was also just kind of a fun experiment to, to practice writing a GM section because I have done a lot of character creation sections and a lot of stuff for players but I had never sat down until Sherwood. I had never sat down and written a GM section before. Uh, so this is really only the second time. And about, I'm about to have to write the GM section of Roseville Beach. So that was, it was good practice going into that. So, so I, I've got a question. Could you sum up the, I guess, give us the, the synopsis of what the game is and about sure, yeah. what not real quick. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. the listeners know. Yeah. I told you a little about the system, but didn't really tell you about the fiction of the game. You play, um, people who are exiled, like a lot of chivalric romances are about people who are under under either officially imposed exile or a self-imposed exile. And like the officially imposed is like my family or my king or or whoever just tossed me out of the country for something. And that's like a, a pretty common chivalric romance trope. And that like, you know, King Horn and Havelock the Dane and um, Hereford the Wake all include long periods of, and, uh, of exile. So does Gandolin. And uh, not Gamwell, Gandolin and um, and uh, Fulcliffe Fitzwarren all have like long periods of where they're just sort of like told just not to leave the country. And they go to places that are on a map uh, and that actually exist in the world. But then they just that really what they're encountering is sort of the the mythic city, the mythic underworld and the mythic wilderness when they leave like they're they're just told to go to like belgium or flanders or france <laughs> or whatever but what the, when they get there it's it's this place that you know that's just strange and weird and full of of strange people and, and weird and weird beings and uh or whales you know they they, they get whales <laughs> and all of a sudden it's just all giants everywhere they're great they do a lot of talking as well as a lot of fighting mm-hmm. and as i was reading i was thinking like these are these are some like classic 70s style or at least this is when you tell people about playing a classic 70s style OSR game, I think this is a lot of what they have in their head. Like there's, there's not like a, a core plot. There's just a lot of like picaresque wanderings. Yes. And, uh, and kind of meandering even more so I think than the, don't tell the appendix in guys who are great. (laughs) Uh, But I think even more so than the appendix in, I think the chivalric romance sort of hits a lot of that just because it's so episodic picaresque not really not really moving along with like a a thing that we as modern readers would consider a plot so can you tell us more about this whole genre of literature because it's not one that i've honestly got a lot of information on or knowledge on i need to learn about (laughs) former english major but always sort of emphasized everything like after 1800 you know, beginning with the romantic movement and, and kind of moving forward was where I always spent all of my time. And so like coming back to medieval literature for the first time since undergrad with Sherwood was a great practice in sort of like reviving my skill, reading reading middle, like late middle English, Chaucerian sort of period middle English. Yes. And just discovered a lot of things that I, that I enjoyed reading. Like, you know, when you, 
as an undergrad, when I decided I was going to be like, you know, all 19th century all the time, uh, I had been like, had sort of like weird little selections of Chaucer just kind of shoved in front of me and said, now read this. Uh, and never really, you know, like I like Chaucer a lot, but it was the, the weird little selections of it were, were never the most interesting ones because, you know, it was a, it was a conservative liberal arts school in West Texas. And so uh, I, I sort of had this like bad attitude about reading Middle English and never really, never really got to like read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight or any of those other things. It was really just like Chaucer. <laughs> and then it was like, yeah, we're moving on. So it was not until I started the Robin Hood project a couple of years ago that I started reading Middle English and then started really getting into a lot of the Middle English romances or not Middle English romances, uh, or, you know, a lot of them were Anglo-Norman or Latin because those were as commonly read as Middle English uh, up to sort of the 14th, late 13th century for reading. For if you were literate, yes. you were as likely to be literate in Anglo-Norman French as you were in Middle English. Uh, and so it was just, you got, a, you got a bigger audience by just, you know, writing in Anglo-Norman French at that particular point in time. And, uh, and uh, so I, you know, had no exposure, especially to the non-Arthurian romances, so anything that wasn't Arthurian, I, I, I had no real meaningful exposure to until I started that project. Well, that's that's what most of my exposure yeah. has been with is that Arthurian, like Uther and all that stuff. I'm, I, you know, I've read a, a bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm most familiar with that. Yeah. <laughs> like I was, I was familiar with Mabinogian. I was familiar with a little bit familiar with Mallory, and you know, I, I certainly knew sort of the French romances of Arthur and and uh, Tristan Isolde, at least by reputation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't read Anglo-Norman French. And then I discovered these great, like, you know, anthologies of collecting some of these, these early non-Arthurian romances that were popular in England in translation, because a lot of them, like I said, were either in Anglo-Norman French or they were in Latin, you know, unless you, unless you were familiar with medieval French uh, and also read Latin, you were not going to be able to just sort of pick them up and read them. And so reading those is, was really, was really sort of eye-opening, exciting. So the fact that I can't read French is one of the greatest um I, I'm frustrated about that more than anything as I, I'm, when my family came to the US they were my grandmother was born and raised in Paris oh and wow she left uh, France fleeing the Nazis and my great-grandmother couldn't speak a lick of English towards the end of her life so there was French in the family. Mm -hmm. But it was very much pushed by the next generation that, like, you speak English in the United States. Yeah. And just, like, I had some books, like, children's books in French. And I, I remember, like, this Frere Jaca, little songs. Mm -hmm. uh, bonbon, standing beneath the refrigerator going, Bonbon, Grandma. But that whole language, like, I, it, it's frustrating to me that it wasn't passed down in the family. <laughs> I wish that it was. <laughs> uh, so when you say that, like, I wish I could read French, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, I wish I, I also, I blame my high school French teacher for being just such a, a tyrant who also did not, apparently, like everybody I knew who, who studied with her and then went overseas to uh, France or another French speaking country or, you know, up to, up to Montreal was like, she did not know French. <laughs> Uh, and I'm old enough that like it, the likelihood that she will ever listen to this is 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 very low. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we have a very niche audience. <laughs> I don't think my high, your high school French teacher is likely to be in that niche. I, I, I could be wrong. You never know. <laughs> I am not quite clear at what point in her life Miss Tidwell is is is, but I, if she's still working, I would be I would be amazed at her perseverance. I mean. I, 
I can't name how many of my school teachers have already passed on. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like it's a lot of them. Uh, I think with the 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 struggles for me in sort of reconnecting with high school is a lot of my favorite teachers died shortly after I moved after after I left. Uh, mm-hmm. Like my government teacher, who was one of the great early liberal progressive influences in my life. Certainly not as far left as I you know I eventually moved, but like when you grow up in a fairly conservative Republican town, that that one non-Republican that you meet and talk to is just such a, like this transformative moment, <laughs> especially in like, you know, the Reagan era that a lot of, so I, I sort of disconnected from a lot of high schools partially because there were no, there were no, there were fewer and fewer teachers to go back and talk to. So that was, you know, that was of the, of the ones I was close to or connected with. And uh, yeah, but you know, the game sort of grew out of like a, reading those, the connection between a chivalric romance and uh, contemporary romance, which I'm also, you know, an ongoing reader of. Also reading some, you know, Walter Scott for the first time. I sort of, when I did 19th century novel classes, Scott was very much out of favor. And I sort of understand why, like the man just does not know where to stop talking. Who, tell me, so I'm I'm going to go in here. I, I need some education. No, no, no worries. And- genre of literature that that you're that you're 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 diving into here uh-huh. we're talking about walter scott if i wanted to pick up a few now a lot of times i can pick up books on ebay or a books uh-huh. or the or half price books for cheap couple bucks if i wanted to look around to try to get a feel for some of this literature where would you su- what would be some names you would suggest i start at and uh could you tell uh-huh. me a little bit about that my exposure to walter scott started with ivanhoe uh, and again, like, you know, that's, that was the first, that was the first book he called that he called a romance in the the 19th century sense of the word, which is, you know, what we might just call a fantasy novel or an alternate history or, or a science fiction novel. Because uh, at that time, romance was being used for anything that was not like a, a novel, like a long form prose fiction that was not about everyday people doing, you know, realistic things was called a romance rather than a novel. Okay. So, uh, and I think, you know, Walter Scott, I think, uh, I get a little more excited about the later period uh, 19th century romances of George MacDonald. Lilith is kind of one of my favorite books from kind of growing up, going to college period. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure going back to it now, I would, I would have like a different take on it, but I, and I've not read it in over a decade. Uh, but Lilith, I think was a, was a pretty powerful example of the 19th century romance for me. And then the contemporary romance is the is the you know the biggest selling genre in literature for the last 50, 60 years uh, is the you know the the paperback the, the, the classic paperback romance that we associate with being about like two people getting you know two people getting together and that's yeah, the those so those those sort of all connected for me in, in sort of writing this okay and it was kind of it was it, so it was a fun game to write I have no idea what reception will be like I have no idea like you know. That's the fun of a jam game is like you really don't know what reception is going to be like. And you, you're doing it solely for yourself. Yeah. And it just because, you know, and I and I have no idea sort of like, you know, how I want to like transform or change this game as it sort of lifespan moves on. But uh, that's that's I think one of the the cool things about tapping back into sort of that 70s mindset around RPGs is even before D&D became the first commercial RPG, we were beginning to see like strands of RPG stuff just showing up in newsletters, like uh, John Peterson talks about like RPGs that were made by science fiction societies 
in the big coastal science fiction societies that had like clubhouses you know like yes. the, the the last one i know of around the east coast is the baltimore science fiction society which as of 10 years ago i don't know if this is still true they still had a place to go that they owned that was their meeting or or rented that there was their meeting hall where they had their library and and uh meeting rooms uh which is not a thing we we hear about anymore but that used to, in the 50s and 60s 70s 80s that was especially in big coastal cities that was a thing that like you know your science fiction society had a clubhouse with its own library and meeting rooms and and also your house rules for your for your rpg <laughs> that you would play you know a combination of both play by mail and and play by uh play by at larp style at conventions and so kind of going back to that kind of that 70s vibe of like hey here's this here's this like you know four or five dollar book we put together it's probably going to change fairly soon but take a look at it um i think it's sort of a one of the coolest things that's been brought back by by uh or even a free book you know that's brought back by sort of really not just looking at osr rule sets but looking at that, that whole mindset about publishing um and getting games out there yeah and i think right well like one of the big things is that technology in the world has changed a great deal right. and that whole like community aspect and stuff like that with the internet is almost global and you have things like these these role-playing scenes and groups online where things like that are occurring people are cranking stuff out via pdf print on demand and everything so having a and the need of a physical space to store your library that's a that's a cool thing but it's also something like 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 there's something you lose something in that <laughs> well, and also our our, our uh, public library systems across the nation have just gotten better at, at picking up genre books yeah uh like since that time i think like when that first emerged that was like really hard to get adult focused science fiction into the public library system you know that was just like we saw you know we're sort of sure it's normal but uh, those, and that's my understanding that librarians out there, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you know, without the, without sort of that common central library and the library was also great for like doing things that at the time public archives were not picking up such as zines, uh, fan publications uh, yeah. that we've since moved into a period where we're making a serious effort to archive those things. Well, when I was growing up in the throughout the 80s, I was born in the 70s, and, and most of my time reading would have been in the 80s, not the 70s. I don't remember much of the 70s. Um, I'm a little too young to remember much of that. But in the 80s, when I was in Cleveland, I lived like I, I lived at the damn library. Yeah. My my like like I was three houses down from it after school every day on the on the week. I would just go up to that library. One of the things they had at the library I went to was they would get comics every week from all the different comic publishers throughout the 80s and then early 90s i would live up there until the 93 and i would spend so much time with the comics there and i would i would just like i lived there not just the comics but it was the sci-fi books like i was always exploring something and uh, i was always a reader so like having that space where i can go in and see books and that's like a necessity to me. To this day, I even go, I spend way too much time going like to half price books and local bookstores and browsing and just, I can spend hours in a bookstore. If I've been there <laughs> three times this week, I can still spend an hour looking around. Yeah. Well, that's, we were also sort of held back by like, a, and like a lot of what I described probably wouldn't be true of say like the Dallas public libraries in the 
sixties and seventies, but we were very much held back by having uh, like small suburban, like we were not, we were maybe I could drive 10 minutes and get to the Dallas public library, but I didn't have checkout privileges there until sometime in the mid eighties. Um, even as like, even as like a kid or family or anything like that, my parents couldn't get checkout privileges there until they changed the rules to be like, Oh, if you live in the larger County uh, or one of the suburbs, you can, you can get a, you can get a library card there, but our small town, you know, suburb library library did not have a good adult fiction section for any genre at all, except for like bestsellers uh, which, you know, traditionally left off all of genre fiction or kind of shoved them onto their own list at that point. Yeah. I read a lot of sci-fi. I read some fantasy, but sci-fi was probably one of my largest um, genres that I read at that time. We had a, like, I, I got into like the Asimov and the Norby Chronicles. You remember the Norby Chronicles and stuff like that. And tons of Asimov, Clark, like that. That was, I was such a fool for toll clones. Like, you know, for what? Like for the toll clones, the ones that like, uh, the the books like the that just sort of mimeographed like the basic pattern of Lord of the Rings. Yes, that yes, were just yes. like shoved out the door. And I was a, I was a fool for those books. I was just totally into anything that reminded me of Lord of the Rings. And I would I would just I would just sit there. I remember a lot of Asimov. I, I remember reading Foundation, uh, and I took a really good science fiction class in co- in a uh, high school back before. Texas got rid of the science fiction classes in high school uh, because, you know, you can't let kids enjoy reading. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we, we got to read like, you know, Orwell and uh, Asimov and uh, some really fantastic short fiction. That was my first exposure to Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. Yeah. Bradbury. I liked. See, I, I made this, I was really into that sci-fi Back in the day when I was growing up and in high school, I started to make some drifts away. Like I, by the time I was in high school, it was the 90s, and there were a lot of like D brand books coming out, like oh, the yeah. Ravenloft stuff started coming out in the 90s, and I was reading some of that. And then I I started drifting away though. I went from like um from Bradbury, and then I started discovering like the beats and stuff like that, yeah. which led to like Hunter Thompson, which led me to reading less fiction and more nonfiction and probably for a good solid 15 or so years, maybe more. I read exclusively nonfiction. I just, I felt burnout of fiction. It was felt redundant after a while. And I was mind blown by what I was discovering in history and philosophy and things along those lines that a vast amount of my library is mostly nonfiction at this point. I have, I went back to a few years back, I'd say probably about five or so years ago, I, I was like, you know, I need to start reading fiction again. And that's when I started discovering some of those appendix and classics that I didn't really read growing up. I didn't yeah. read Howard and Conan growing up. The uh, first time I read Howard was about five years ago. <laughs> I uh, didn't read much Howard growing up. I read no Moorcock. Um I did read Moorcock growing up. And I I got friends who are going to hate me for saying this. I think <laughs> there's a certain period for like attaching mentally to Elric. And I like, I sort of missed it. Like I, I yeah. tried to read Elric for the first time at like 30. And like, I feel like if you're not, 
if you're not like a frustrated teenager when you're reading Warcock, <laughs> you're you're missing something that it's just not connecting. And I understand like oh, you know you, it hits you and then it sticks with you, but like I, I miss getting hit. Well, I think you say that about a lot of literature, like J.D. Yeah. Salinger. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd even say some of the beats. Uh, it might be along those lines. Hunter Thompson is one of those ones when you discover when you're young, when you're, young you're like, yeah, this is the greatest thing I've ever found. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a lot. As of an adult, I really connected with Lankmar. Like, I did not read Lankmar growing up. I I couldn't find copies of it anywhere. We had crappy systems of used bookstores. Couldn't find it in the library. Uh, yeah. And then. Uh, white wolf publishing did new editions of everything and all of a sudden it was available in paperback and i just gobbled those up vance yeah oh vance is one that yeah. I, I recently in the last couple of years i read that and, and i'll be honest i think i said this before on the show uh, yeah that's not from I I, I I i don't know how to respond to what i read yeah. that dying earth book was quite a thing there are definitely some problems in it yeah. especially in regards to things like gender and stuff. But even beyond that, I was just mind blown that I, I had no idea what was happening half the time. Yeah. It was strange. I uh, like Dying Earth, but frequently like kind of like not really connect with it. Vance's Leoness novel series, I have loved. And I, there's a ton of problems with the Leoness novel series. And, and uh, I certainly like, I I you know, like if you're, if you're looking at, if you're thinking about reading them, like look at, look for some of those, content warnings and reviews before you go in just because there's you know it's yeah. been a while since i read them so i'm probably missing things in in the quick trying to remember things but there's definitely problems with them but still sort of like prose was evocative the characters were were engaging and they really hit sort of the chivalric romance feel uh about sort of like this atlantean style continent that's in the middle you know in the middle of the atlantic and, and trades with england or, or trades with early Britain mm -hmm. and they have a, they have a strong vibe and that includes all of the, the gender and sexuality and uh, violence enforcing gender and sexuality that uh, you would expect from a chivalric romance also kind of show up in Leoness. That some of that stuff was really like a frustration of mine years ago when I stopped reading fantasy and science fiction, right. like, like you look at uh what's his name slaughterhouse five um yeah. what was his name oh yeah 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 he and uh, like some of these God, vonnegut and, and a lot of these guys like reading these works of classic literature and, and you read through them it's like God, this this sounds like a horny 13 year old this is i'm not interested in this, this is too much sometimes like this is the great i'm like uh that's like when i found ginsburg one of the things that blew me away about ginsburg is here's this man, I don't know, maybe some warnings when I get graphic. Here's this man who's like suddenly writing completely different than these other like horny 13-year-old straight boys. Like, their boobs were great. Her boobs were great. And here's this guy like talking about just seeing Jack Kerouac and running into his car to masturbate furiously, thinking about him like, whoa, that blew my mind open when I was in high school. I had never seen anything like that in writing. I was like, holy crap. So like, going into guys like Ginsburg, like it was a change and a shift from what I was seeing from that. And I was into that. It was cool. <laughs> I, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was also, I mean, like as, as a, as a young repressed gay person encountering both Ginsburg and Whitman super early on initially resulted in me going like, no, no, I've got to run away. 
uh, hide somewhere. <laughs> also, the same thing with Wild, like that that sort of like touchstone of of knowing where to come back to and uh, mm -hmm. reassessing, like as an adult who's out of the closet, was was a pretty like being able to be familiar with and know them and assess them and and uh, oh the Ginsburg the Ginsburg when I always go back to is the Safeway in California, um, and I'm completely blanking on the actual title of that poem. The one about like reading Walt Whitman and then going to the grocery store and just seeing Walt Whitman everywhere. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's wonderful, great piece. I absolutely love that one and, and, and connect with it pretty intensely. But yeah, I mean, even going back to the Lieber, I, I definitely had that like, all right, this definitely targeted her horny 13 year olds. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like uh, with Lieber, I can be like, "Hey, yeah, like at least you're kind of laughing at as well as with the horny thirteen-year-olds." Yeah, it took me a while till I could get back to a place where I could read some of that without being like, because at a point, like in the evolution of myself as a human being, I was like reading it became difficult, and then yeah. I was like, "Okay, I'm I'm gonna have to be able to be like, okay, I can read through this, understand what it is." I mean, there are limitations to what I can read at times, but. I can read through some of these older works and not just lose my shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it certainly says something that like, I, I sort of mentally approach reading them the same way I approach reading medieval literature. Um, yeah. <laughs> or a yeah. novel. Like that's like, it's probably this time is a, is a, is like a, like a kind of dismissive, like trying to get rid of the problems. And I, I think you, you sort of have to read for the problems and you have to have enough space in your head to like look at the problems and not just kind of shunt them aside as products of their time. Um, yeah. And, uh, but you also have to be like, hey, this is, this is an actual way that people created things and made things for, for a long period of time and, and like we're not going to confront those problems unless we confront them in the artifacts they left behind that we're still like you know struggling with and meeting and talking about and encountering you know those manifestations of those problems and like you certainly get it in Howard a lot when I finally started oh, yeah. Howard like seriously as it, like did not just cursorily because I was because uh, I, I think as a teenager I picked up Howard and I was like but where are the four elf companions <laughs> you know, and uh, like, where are the two dwarves, and where's the assembly of all the free people? And like, you know, uh, and like, Howard was having none of it. <laughs> uh, so when I finally went back and picked up Howard as like an adult, uh, specifically reading sort of like to get non Tolkien fantasy as much as possible, uh, there was definitely like, a, like, a, oh, wow, there are some, there's some bullshit going on here. There's some very Texas bullshit going on. Here. <laughs> There definitely is, yeah. and it, it's no. Well, one of the things too is 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 uh, politically, I lie pretty far to the left. Yeah, but at the same time, the odd thing about me is I listen to a lot of right wing talk radio. <laughs> I have to, I have to, I have to know. Yeah. I have to hear. There's something about me that wants to hear these things that I have problems with, that I disagree with. I want to know what's coming out. And like when reading stuff and being able to see that and evaluate and hear it, I think it kind of helped me at a point when going, returning and getting a degree and everything and going to school and studying. And I, like I said, I read a lot of nonfiction, sociology and social theory is a big part of what I got into and read. And as someone who's into social theory and sociology, I find these things fascinating. I can get a lot out of reading 
a fiction novel that's not necessarily just the fiction story and part of that is intriguing to me as well when i look at that kind of stuff yeah yeah i think for me a lot of it is looking for what are the anger and anxiety of this period like bringing out what like and I don't want to like, you know, over psychoanalyze like why people do shitty stuff, but it's just like, this is not just a thing, a shitty thing that somebody did. This is a shitty thing that like made it into like a poem that was widely, you know, for a period that was not widespread literacy was still widely circulated. And what's, what's the draw of this? Like, what, what is this connecting with in people? Um, and I think one of the things for both early genre literature and for the chivalric romance and uh this is me speculating wildly not not having an informed scholarly opinion so like if i'm completely wrong i'd I'd love to hear from from people who are are wiser than i am on this not from random reply guys (laughs) no doubt well we're 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 coming way past time uh and, and i know that you have recorded the longest recorded episode of wobblies and Wizards ever no. i know we could do that well it's on the patreon it is an exclusive it's like two hours for being easy to talk to shane <laughs> it's like two hours long if you want to hear it go subscribe on the patreon check it out but we're gonna go so could you tell the listeners where they can find my chivalric romance and your other works online and where they can find yeah you? yeah they can find me at r-rook.com or r-rook.itch.io and uh, those are the best places to find me. I'm also at Rook Studio on Twitter, just all one word, no dashes, no periods, no anything. And uh, those are the, I think the three best places to find me. I, I'm also in a few different discussion forums, several of which overlap with with, with Shane. So um, like, I, I always take Shane being there as a sign that the place is quality. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Cause I go, like I said, I listen to a lot of right-wing talk radio. So I go places that are frightening sometimes online. <laughs> I was like, Shane being active and pleasant there is kind of the places is pretty decent. And, uh, but I think felt a lot of those other places, I just, I don't really talk about my work much. I'm, I'm really just kind of there to like, listen and see what other people are doing. And, and, uh, uh, but those are kind of the three places I think that's, that's the easiest to engage with me online. Don't come to Twitter. If you're a reply guy though, I will we'll just, you know, happily, happily block reply guys. So uh, yeah, that's the, that's the best place to find me online. Excellent. Thank you for coming back on. It has been a blast, as always. It has. And we'll definitely have you on again in the future. (laughs) All right. Great. I'm looking forward to it. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, please give us a positive review wherever you're listening. You can find us on Facebook. Search Wildlies and Wizards. Wildliesandwizards.com is our blog. I'm on Twitter at LogarHaleProm. Any support we can get on Patreon would be greatly appreciated. Patreon.com backslash Wildliesandwizards. And keep those dice rolling.